All right, well, let's go ahead and begin. Welcome. This morning we'll uh, be kind of pivoting a little bit in the class, so we'll be uh, moving on from the set of sexual topics that we've been covering over the past several weeks and move on to a a set of um, social and political topics. Uh, This week we'll cover racism and then... um, Refugees and immigration next week. Miguel Echeverria will be doing that. He's uh, written a bit on the topic and uh, published writing, that is, not just scribbled handwritten notes. But um, he's thought a lot about it and will be uh, teaching on that topic next week. And uh, he'll actually be doing a a whole series of the fourth quarter of this year in this classroom on living as exiles, kind of a, a look at the New Testament teaching on living between the time of Christ's first and second coming. Uh, So he'll be with us next week and then again later in the year. And then we'll do politics and religious freedom uh, in one week, uh, the following week. And then we'll finish things off with technology, a week on technology at the the end there. So this morning we're talking about racism. Um, In 1835, 30 years before the Civil War, about uh, Alexis de Tocqueville visited the U.S. and wrote Democracy in America and has a section in there on the races in um, the newly formed United States. He says, this is a long quote. I should have put it on your handouts. I actually meant to put it on your handouts, and I forgot, so let me tax your minds by reading it to you. Um, He says, I do not imagine that the white and black race will ever live in any country upon equal footing. But I believe the difficulty to be still greater in the United States than elsewhere. An isolated individual may surmount the prejudices of religion, of his country, or of his race. And if this individual is a king, he may effect surprising changes in society. But a whole people cannot rise, as it were, above itself. A despot who should subject the Americans and their former slaves to the same yoke might perhaps succeed in commingling their races, but as long as the American democracy remains at the head of affairs, no one will undertake so difficult a task. And thus it may be, and thus it may be foreseen that the freer the white population of the United States becomes, the more isolated it will remain." Now, many would say that in 2018, Tocqueville has been proven wrong, um, that we have made much progress in the United States and have even elected a black president, and that whites and blacks do live on equal footing in this country. They would say racism, if it exists, is a fiction foisted on us by the elites, by those who stand to gain from creating the problem of racial tension. But by contrast, others would say that racism is a predominant social reality, uh, pervasive in the United States, permeating our society like the air we breathe. Um, So just a a little interaction from Twitter that demonstrates this from kind of within our own tribe. A guy named Justin Taylor um, from the Gospel Coalition uh, tweeted something from Tim Keller. Okay, so Tim Keller says, Two reasons that many conservative evangelicals, particularly white ones, seem to have a growing indifference to the sin of racism. One reason is the stubbornness of the sinful human heart. Then he explains that, and then he says, 
Uh, a second reason is cultural. Many have made racism and prejudice virtually the only thing they call a sin and will lay this sin at the doorstep of conservatives and especially conservative evangelicals. And so many who identify themselves as conservatives simply don't want to hear about racism anymore. They give lip service to it being a sin, uh, but they associate any sustained denunciation of racism with the liberal or secular systems of thought. So he's explained there why the evangelical, growing evangelical indifference to the sin of racism. Then there was a seminary president who responded uh, on Twitter this way. Is there really indifference to the sin of racism? Or is there just disagreement with the basic argument about racism coming from prominent voices um, like yours, Tim Keller, is the the implication. So you see this disagreement then about whether racism even exists and in what form it, it, it exists. So how can we account for such drastically different views? Uh, is there anything that we can say a bit more definitely? Um, and how should the Bible shape our thinking about these things? Uh, some have suggested that there's a better way of thinking about the meaning of race in America than simply declaring that racism is an enduring problem or that prejudice remains. Rather than using terms like um, racism or prejudice, uh, we could talk about the meaning of race in America in terms of, uh, of a racialized, so- racialized society. So we'll start there and then move on to a biblical worldview, uh, followed by some suggestions for Christians. So first of all, uh, a racialized society. This term and the definition come from sociologists Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They say a racialized society is a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. Race matters profoundly. So your experience of life in America depends on your race, specifically whether you're white or black. Uh, And there's tons of data to demonstrate uh, this point. Blacks are three times more likely than whites to be poor. Blacks earn 40% less than whites and have about an eighth of the net worth that whites have. The median net financial assets of blacks is 0% on that of whites, $0 compared to $7,000. There are two unemployed blacks for every one unemployed white. Uh, In regards to housing, black-owned housing units are valued at 35% less than white-owned units. And racial profiling on the highways has become such a well-known phenomenon that a term has emerged to describe it, not driving while intoxicated, but driving while black. African-Americans have poorer health and higher death rates. Uh, On a Sunday morning, over 90% of African-Americans go to a predominantly black congregation, and at least 95% of whites go to predominantly white congregations. Blacks and whites watch different television shows, produce and listen to different music. Um, The experiences of blacks and whites in America are very different. So disparities in a long list of categories like this and many others point to this reality. We live in a racialized society uh, where your experience of life in these United States depends on uh, your race. So in each of these disparities, then, blacks are typically uh, at the bottom of the well, as one author put it, lagging behind. And yet, racism is looked down on by most people. As one author observed, uh, nowadays, except for members of white supremacist organizations, few whites in the United States claim to be racist. Most whites assert they don't see any color, just people. Uh, He goes on to say, but regardless of whites' sincere fictions, racial considerations shade almost everything in America. 
Blacks and dark-skinned minorities lag well behind whites in virtually every area of social life. So again, race matters profoundly uh, for your experience of life in America. Most agree on this. Few would argue that this data has been contrived, but how does this happen and why does it remain this way? If hardly anyone claims to be racist and most people agree that racism is wrong, then why do we have a racialized society? That's where the disagreement uh, kicks in. It's interpreting that data. What, what does that mean? Where does that come from? And not surprisingly, uh, blacks and whites answer the questions very differently. Uh, whites in general and white evangelicals in particular answer this why question, the interpretive question, uh, primarily with individual explanations. And blacks explain this problem in terms of structural racism. So whites and conservative evangelical whites in particular explain it in individual terms. Blacks tend to explain it in structural terms. So the individual explanation goes something like this. Uh, People are responsible for their own decisions, so if blacks lag behind, that's their own fault. Uh, They've made bad decisions, and they're reaping bad consequences, evidently. As for people who are racist, I can't really think of any or many, um, but they should work to love their neighbor by making friends with someone of another race. But as I see it, racism is not an overarching structural or institutional problem. And actually, I think invoking structures or institutions shifts the guilt away from its real source, the individual. So that's the individual explanation for all those disparities between blacks and whites. I'm not espousing that. I'm just saying that that's the explanation. That would be typical, demographically speaking, of every, every one of us in this room, I think, or most of us. Um, and then there's the structural explanation, which sees racial disparities and racialized society as the, a product of the system. So this explanation, the structural explanation, would go something like this. White people are usually at the top, and they make all the decisions. What, the the da- decks are stacked in favor of the whites. And whether intentionally or inadvertently, they make decisions that continue to favor whites and marginalize and do further harm to blacks. The way to change the racialized society, then, is to deconstruct the systems and rebuild them with black sharing positions of influence. So those are the individual and structural explanations just briefly uh, described. What's interesting is that being evangelical, uh, I just mean being a serious Christian, you know, attending church regularly, reading your Bible, um, being born again, uh, being an evangelical strengthens one's views. So white conservative Protestants are more individualistic and less structural in their explanations of black-white inequality than other whites are. And black Protestants are more structural and less individualistic than other blacks are. So this means that we were kind of thinking of it on a continuum that non-Christians, whether black or white, are closer to the middle. And Christians, whether black or white, are further to the edges. And what this means is that on, in explaining a racialized society and the disparity between the races in the United States, Christians are actually farther apart. Black and white Christians are actually farther apart uh, than non-Christians. Uh, division in the church is greater than it is outside the church. As James says, these things ought not to be. So there was a, 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 uh, a New York Times article a couple months ago called A Quiet Exodus, Why Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. Uh, 
we are regressing, not progressing, in terms of finding unity um, as blacks and whites who are brothers and sisters in Christ. As, as is often the case with two sides of an argument, there are elements, you know, in the individual structural um, discussion, there are elements on both sides, of course, that can be affirmed, but the dynamics of our argument tend to push people to defend their differences rather than to acknowledge uh, what holds them in common. We have to work at affirming uh, what holds us together, especially when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ who um, are in the minority. So what, what maintains this racialized society? Um, well, as I say, there are different explanations for that, but one, one thing that can um, widely be agreed on, uh, as Christian Smith observed, choice and freedom are two of the dominant American values that t- today maintain the racialized society. Choice and freedom. In other words, this racialized society is no longer being enforced uh, by anyone. It's being self-selected by both sides, blacks and whites. Um, which is a view that, that somewhat replicates Tocqueville's prophecy, where he said it may be foreseen that the freer the white population of the United States becomes, the more isolated it will remain, or the, the more the two, um, the two races will be segregated. Um, so in our current cultural moment, then, this is a, a very divided issue in our experience of things and very tense in our conversations about these things. So how do we think about uh, this in terms of a biblical worldview? Well, we begin with the creation of Adam and Eve. God created one human race. So there is one race, not many. And then from Adam and Eve descended all the peoples of the world. So the Bible never describes multiple races, uh, but rather views humanity as a whole made up of many ethnicities. That's the biblical word. Uh, So when we refer to various races, uh, we're using a common expression for common understanding, but we're not using a biblically uh, specific or necessarily even accurate term. There's one human race. So it seems that the capacity for ethnic diversity within the human race was latent in creation, you know, that varying skin colors um, and other ethnically distinct physical traits are not the result of the fall uh, but could have been generated by something like progressive microevolution, you know, just changes within a species over time, uh, even apart from the fall. So one human race with the capacity for extensive variations over time. So one thing we learn from creation is that humanity is one race, not many, which binds us together. We're all sharing equal dignity because of God's image in us. You know, and this is why almost all Christians agree that racism is wrong. It's a blasphemy against the image of God in us. Uh, and yet there is extensive diversity, and this is good and not bad. This is part of God's creational design. And then we would say about relationships at creation that they were perfect. Um, relationships uh, in, in multiple directions were perfect, both uh, from humanity toward God, that relationship was one of harmony, unity, uh, submitting to God as creator, God blessing, and there was an enjoyment and affection there. And then uh, the relationship um, among humanity, or specifically between Adam and Eve, which is, you know, if, if they had held off on rejecting God, uh, those perfect relationships would have continued uh, toward uh, all their offspring as well. But there was perfect harmony in relationships between humans and God and humans and other humans. The fall shattered human relationships uh, with one another and with God. And after the fall and the curse, the very next narrative in the story is uh, that of Cain and Abel, uh, where Cain is killing Abel out of jealousy. 
And then jealousy, strife, anger, hatred, animosity, all of these things manifest themselves um, in the way that people relate to one another. Rather than being born with an innate innate propensity to love and to act in self-giving ways toward other people, we're born with this innate propensity toward animosity and self-exaltation. So the fall did ruin humans' relationship with God, uh, but it also ruined our relationships with one another. And the story of Cain and Abel portrays this effect immediately on the heels of uh, the fall. And then many broken relationships later, you have this story of humanity united, exalting itself against God. Uh, on the plains of Shinar, we're told, they built a tower to the heavens. It's like they're declaring uh, a new corporate collective rejection of God. What's God's response to this human hubris? Genesis 11 says, God said, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Therefore, its name came to be called Babel, which means confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So sin, specifically the sin of humanity uniting itself uh, in rejection of God, you know, as it were saying, we are God, is what produced uh, the linguistic and cultural divisions among humanity. So ethnic um, division, then, is a result of the fall. Different languages, different cultures, geographically separated and isolated, is a result of the fall. So this means, all this means that diversity among humanity was part of God's design, uh, but division among humanity was not. So ordered diversity was the pattern of creation, but chaotic division was the product of the fall. So this, this means that we should all want societies. You know, the biblical worldview teaches us to want societies that reflect diversity without division, the creation dynamics without the fall dynamics. Diversity without division. But human history is a a record of uh, this division playing itself out, ethnic division and and tension, Um, human groups killing one another. It's like the story of Cain and Abel played out on a corporate level where entire uh, ethnic regimes grow bitter and hateful toward other ethnic groups and then suppress and then oppress and then obliterate them. Uh, So you could think of the Soviet gulags in the early 20th century or um, the Nazi concentration camps in the mid-20th century or in 2018, the uh, internment camps in China for Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. You know, these examples by no means isolated, abnormal. Uh, They're just recent. Um, They're they're reiterations of the Cain-Abel story on a collective or national sort of level. Human civilization, then, has been marked by ethnic division and tension. This is because mutual hostility among all human beings was introduced through the fall. Uh, Human relationships are marked by conflict and hostility. At the individual level, that looks something like the story of Cain and Abel. And at a collective level, it results in the division and hostility between one ethnicity as a whole and another, which is seen played out in societies all over the world all throughout time. And this will continue to mark humanity until the day Christ returns. There will never be ethnic harmony apart from the gospel. Societies may aspire to it, and they should, and that's a good thing. 
but the fall uh, leaves Bible-believing Christians profoundly pessimistic about the human condition. At the same time, uh, redemption through Christ makes us profoundly hopeful about the possibility of transformation, specifically transformation that comes through the power of the gospel. And not only transformation off in the future, uh, but even transformation that begins here and now. What might this look like? Uh, Well, God in Christ makes a new reality possible. Uh, It's a new day for a redeemed people of God. So redemption begins to roll back the effects of the curse. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. So we've seen that you know, being, being redeemed means to be freed, um, liberated from bondage to sin. It also means being reconciled to God, being made at peace with God. And not only that, uh, but God is now reconciling us to one another as well. So look at Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. Uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So Paul is saying here that we have been brought near to God. He begins with that point. We have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. But then he proceeds to say uh, that we've been brought near to one another as well. There's neither Jew nor Greek, but rather there is one new man in place of the two. Um, So this is a, a redeemed humanity, the gospel then is the the best and the only sure foundation for answering uh, this solution to to racial hostility. The secular answer um, to to portray it simplistically has been to uh, reconstruct societal structures uh, with an enforced ethnic diversity. But being multi-ethnic, you know, having ethnic diversity in a structure is not the same as having ethnic harmony or racial harmony. Racial diversity does not equal racial harmony. What we are after in the church is not simply or merely ethnic diversity, uh, but rather racial harmony. We want to be reconciled to one another. You may remember that Tom mentioned in introducing the letter to the Romans um, that what likely was happening in Romans is that um, Jews had been kicked out of the city. And so now for some time, the congregations of Christians in Rome were exclusively Gentile, and they were happy with this situation. Uh, it's like a predominantly white church. And then when the Jews were allowed back into Rome by the government, um, the Jewish Christians began re-entering their former congregations, and hostility and conflict arose within the church between Jews and Gentiles along these ethnic lines. So Paul says in Romans fifteen five through 7, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
In the same way that you have been welcomed into the family of God, uh, those where, where, there's eth- where there has been ethnic tension and division, there ought to be a warm, welcoming kind of embrace into this one new family, one new man, uh, as he puts it in Ephesians. So there should be a warm hospitality across um, racial lines within the church. You might think about it this way. Black visitors coming into a predominantly white church or white visitors coming into a predominantly black church. Are they welcomed, uh, invited to lunch as many times as, as those of the majority uh, race? Across racial lines, Christians have to welcome and receive one another as brothers and sisters uh, in God and in Christ, first of all, not primarily according to ethnicity, not merely with an insincere kind of politeness, uh, but with every bit of the same sincerity and emotional warmth uh, that you would grant to someone of the same color. And this, again, is because we are one new man, uh, no longer black or white, but a third thing, uh, something different than black or white, something new. And, and our bond now in Christ is thicker and more meaningful to us um, than our bond as white people with all the experiences and preferences that go along with that, or our bond as black people with all the experience and preferences that go along with that. As John Piper put it, the bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. Almost like a paraphrase of Ephesians 2 there, that the two bloodlines have been made one new race in Jesus Christ. So to go back to the idea of a racialized society, and specifically explaining a racialized society... Uh, Christians should not be farther apart, but rather closer together, more unified uh, in their thinking on these things, even black and white Christians, or I should say particularly black and white Christians. This doesn't mean that every church must strive to become multi-ethnic. There's no command like that, but it does mean that a, a racially homogenous church in a racially diverse community should seriously think about why the diversity of the community is not present in the church. Just think about why is that? Uh, What what historical reasons are there? What current realities uh, result in that segregation? And then also be thinking about whether steps should be taken to change this state of affairs. So we don't all agree on how to diagnose or remedy uh, this problem, but it is something that we should be thinking about, a concern that we should have on our hearts. Uh, Part of the reason that we should think about it is that, as we always say, the church should be a foretaste of heaven. And what will heaven be like? Um, Well, this is the final part of the biblical worldview. In Revelation 7, John sees the vision of the Lamb's throne, and he, he describes what he sees in Revelation 7. He says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, in the 1430s, um, Jan van Eyck painted the arrival of the mystical lamb based on Revelation 7, the passage that I just read. Read that passage and painted this painting. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I don't know what he intended by each of those different groups, but it's clear they're all white. Um, which it seems to be exactly what Revelation 7 is telling us is not the case. 
um, that rather you've got all tribes and tongues and, and nations together. So I know all you art people are probably thinking about the product of the times and all the reasons that um, it, it is, this painting is the way it is. But what we can say is that to be biblically accurate, it ought to be different. And this is true in the church as well. Uh, Revelation 21 through 22, you know, the culminating vision of the book of Revelation is of a city where all God's people dwell. It's one city, including and encompassing all the nations. And the hostility between nations and ethnicities has been healed. And somehow the many tongues are singing with one voice so that all those gathered around the mystical lamb and his throne are singing not only with a loud voice, um, but with a unified voice. So as one author said, heaven is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational city, free from division, but full of diversity. And the church should long for this kind of vision as a foretaste of heaven even now. So how might um, God's people, God's redeemed people, working toward redemption dynamics in our community, um, how might we work toward being countercultural? So in terms of those, you know, how to engage culture, this is one of those areas we want to be countercultural. There's much we can affirm about a desire for ethnic diversity, but we would have to put it as a backseat goal to a primary goal, which is ethnic harmony. Um, what, what does moving toward ethnic harmony in the midst of a racialized society look like? Not being a racialized society, but rather a reconciled society. How do we do that in the church? I've heard someone suggest that on this issue, Christians uh, tend to move in this sequence from ignorance to awareness to intentionality, um, resulting eventually in gospel community. And I think many whites, this is certainly the critique that many blacks and black Christians in particular have made. I think many whites, majority culture people like most of us in the room, lie in in the first uh, step of this sequence. We remain in the ignorance phase. We think um, racism is made up, or if not made up, I've just never seen it. I don't know when and where and how it happens. Um, And so we would need to move along this sequence toward greater awareness before we even reflect on what intentionality might look like resulting in gospel community. So with, with that kind of assumption or thought in mind, here are just a few ideas for a Christian response uh, for moving from ignorance to awareness. First of all, uh, read an alternative perspective. Read an alternative perspective. So read from some authors of color, for instance. Uh, D.A. Horton said the first step is to become more intellectually equipped, meaning we need to read works by authors of color and and women and even non-Christians and non-believers if we um, want to critically engage what is really a complex conversation about race, um, the meaning and problem of race in America. So three thoughtful books that you could read like this. I've listed them there on your handout. Uh, My top recommendation would be Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion, and the Problem of Race in America by sociologists uh, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, who are uh, professors at Notre Dame and North Park University, respectively. Um, And then second would be a book called Race... Racism Without Racists, uh, Colorblind Racism and Racial Inequality in Contemporary America by Eduardo Bonilla-Silva. He's a professor at Duke University, professor of sociology at Duke University uh, just down the road. Very warm uh, personality. You can watch some of his lectures on YouTube if you want to look that up. 
but um, you could read the book as well. It's longer, it's more academic, uh, but very thoughtful and thought-provoking from a very different perspective than um, what many many white evangelicals would hold to. And then a book by a New Testament scholar, uh, Jarvis Williams, who happens to be a personal friend of Daniel Harmon, um, called One New Man, a Pauline uh, Theology, the Cross and Racial Reconciliation in Pauline Theology. He says uh, in that book, this book aims to provide Christians with a biblical worldview of race and race relations. Uh, so he is African-American uh, looking to understand the theology of, of Paul on racial reconciliation, bring a biblical worldview to this issue. So if you wanted to read a book kind of from outside of, uh, you know, your, your own experience and perspective, those would be great places to start. A second idea um, for gaining awareness would be to have a conversation with a, a member of a uh, minority group. I mentioned um, at the beginning of this class several weeks ago that a book by Alan Jacobs called How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. And he has a couple pages in the back of the book with this intriguing title, A Thinking Person's Checklist. Um, sounds like something you'd want to make sure you, you know, like what's on that checklist. I want to be a thinking person. What's on that checklist? Well, number two, he says, value learning over debate. Don't talk for victory. Value learning over debate. Don't talk for victory. And then number seven, he suggests, and this is what I talked about before, is seek out the best and fair-minded of people whose views you disagree with. Listen to them for a time without responding. Whatever they say, think it over. So this was that idea of civil disagreement. You know, look to get into conversations with people who have had different experiences with, than you and who may disagree with you on interpreting, uh, you know, diagnosing the problem and bringing remedy to the problem. Uh, there's a lot of things that one white person might say to another white person on these issues that would really resonate. And you'd walk away from that conversation together very happy and affirmed about how you've thought through this issue. Uh, But if you said those same things to a black person, they'd push back. And that pushback might be really helpful and necessary and even humbling, hopefully. Um, So have conversations, um, you know, across with with those who, who don't agree with you. And, and be a, a, a listener. Don't talk for victory. Um, so the idea of, of listening in this kind of, is not to affirm, validate everything that's said and to deny yourself an opinion, uh, but rather to learn before you exercise your own opinion. So think over what's said. So this is, this is a, a demographic assumption based on um, the fact that it's mostly white people in the room. But um, we would... we. As, as a group, just those of us who are in this room, if, if there was a room similar, if just full of black people, we, we would disagree, demographically speaking, on a lot of things. Uh, is the Black Lives Matter movement helpful? Is the extent of the use of force by law enforcement on black men justified? Should Confederate flags and Confederate monuments be removed because they enshrine and celebrate racism? Uh, we would likely disagree on the whole these two rooms, about these things. Uh, But we would be sharpened by trying to listen sympathetically to someone who thoughtfully disagrees with us. And we should seek out these kinds of opportunities. Um, We may disagree, uh, but it's, it's it's very easy to discount those who disagree as irrational. Um, Someone in my family talking about these issues one time said, in exasperation, it's crazy. It's just crazy. 
about uh, an explanation that was being given for something. I, I don't even know how to argue against that. It's just irrational. That can be a tempting and easy thing to do, but it's very unhelpful and condescending. Uh, not the spirit that should characterize Christians. Where we may diagnose the problems in our society differently, we can try to look at it from the perspective that they are seeing it from uh, and where their response comes from. In one sense, pulling down monuments is like a prophetic voice, not a divine prophecy. I'm not validating it or suggesting that, but it's an attempt to identify a sin in a society, like a delayed reaction to slavery. So I'd encourage you to have conversations with minorities about these issues. Quick poll by show of hands. How many of you have recently had a conversation with a black person about these issues sometime in the past six months? A few of you. Okay. How many of you have not in the past six months had a conversation with a black person about these things? Okay. The greater majority. Um, Think about someone you may know who you could have a conversation with about these things. A third suggestion, then, is is make yourself a minority. Make yourself a minority. Um, A couple years ago, uh, our neighbor turned 50. His name's Sterling. He's an African-American guy. Played football at NC State the year I was born, actually. And uh, and the way they evidently do 50th birthday parties in... uh, his family is fly people in from all over the U.S., all family, extended family and all that, and rent out a hotel room. And, uh, you know, everyone stayed at the hotel that weekend, and they had a huge birthday party with a dance floor and DJ and um, photo booth and, and all of that. Anyway, Stacy and I were privileged to be invited to this. And so we went. We were the only two white people at this party, uh, 100 people or so, uh, for a little while, and then one other white guy showed up. I know this because I was counting, uh, just one other guy. And if, if you were uh, uh, in that situation, you probably would have been counting too. And if you were one of two or three black people in a room, you'd be counting that as well. Uh, it feels very different to be in a minority situation in a majority context can feel a little uncomfortable at times, like you've showed up at the wrong address. Uh, But being part of the majority culture, you know, whites don't normally have those kinds of experiences. Not that none of us ever, never have, but it's not normal. It's not our typical experience. And so it's helpful to try to place ourselves in that situation and just kind of notice what kinds of thoughts and feelings uh, it brings out in you. These are just a few ideas for moving from ignorance to awareness. We want to continue to move in this sequence because our goal, again, is not merely racial um, diversity. It's not a bad goal, but it's a secondary goal. The goal is racial harmony, uh, which would be similar to the gospel community kind of idea here. In reflecting on whether um, there are sinful dynamics that have led to uh, the segregation that that does currently uh, exist on Sunday mornings. Um, so let me ask you now if you have any, um, you, know, you, you probably feel very sensitive to ask questions or talk about this uh, in a group, but any questions or comments uh, 